Good morning, everyone. Guys, good to see you. Thank you for uh, coming to jump into this today. Big shout out to Lisa Given and everyone who did Operation Christmas Child last week. Thank you for your help with that um, as well, especially somewhat on the fly. We are picking up today where we left off two weeks ago. And two weeks ago, we jumped into Revelation 4 through 5. Revelation 4 through 5 is this vision or scene where John is able to see the throne room of heaven. And he sees God and everyone surrounding the throne of God. And what we see in this is setting the tone for the rest of the book. Two weeks ago, we talked about the spatial geography of heaven. In other words, John seeing everything in relation to the throne and the importance of what that means to these churches that he's writing this letter to. What was promised two weeks ago is that today we're going to get into symbols. Let's unpack Revelation 4 and 5 and draw the significance out of what John is actually seeing there. Let me read Revelation 5, just verse 1 and 2 again. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Wouldn't you love to know what's written on the scroll? And people will hypothesize all kinds of things about what's written on the scroll. And it serves as a case study, I think, for how people approach Revelation in general. Because the scroll is one of maybe 150 symbols that we're going to come across going, what is this? What's the significance of this? What do I do with this? What meaning am I supposed to draw out of this? And in response, hypotheses come flying. There's a G.K. Chesterton quote I shared a couple of months back that I'd like to share again. G.K. Chesterton, if you don't know him, was basically the, the Christian Mark Twain of the 19th to early 20th century. He was an apologist and a satirist. And if you ever get a chance to read his stuff, read his book called Orthodoxy and his book called Heresy. Um, it, it's just funny. I mean, the guy just had a wit about him, and it's great. And this is what he wrote about Revelation. Let me read this to you. There are many strange creatures in the book of Revelation, but none so strange as their commentators. Isn't that great? Because you see the stupid stuff that people start saying that it means, or these like outlandish ideas, and, and when you don't have an answer key, it allows and suggests a lot of that, doesn't it? So, so what's written on the scroll? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think is written on the scroll. I think it's Jesus' shopping list. I think Jesus needed to go to the store. And what was written on this was like just the things he needed to buy so he didn't forget to bring milk and eggs home that day. Right? Does that seem like a valid interpretation? No, no, it doesn't sit well, does it? 
What about this? Maybe it's zoning and ordinance. Maybe it's the code that they're looking to expand some on the back room of the throne room and they've got to get some stuff cleared and they're just kind of checking the law and they just want to know, can we do this? Because we've all had building projects going, oh, what's the county going to say? What's the city going to say? And they're just kind of checking the code. What do you think? No, it sounds kind of stupid, doesn't it? And yet, I think that's exactly the same thing we do with these symbols in a more theological kind of way. If something sounds good, if something sounds right, we roll with it. Or we find what we do like and go, that must be it because we know this. The Bible is supposed to say what I like. And then we just run down that path. We're all guilty of this. We all do this in a variety of ways. And I bring this up because Revelation is the book that really puts to a test how you go about interpreting the Bible. And it basically tests, are you going to interpret the Bible based on what you think it should say, hope it will say, want it to say, or can suggest or tantalize your mind with what it will say? Or is there going to be some kind of interpretive control that helps guide me into what John may have meant by these symbols? Now, I've been making the case from the beginning that John is drawing on a deep, deep well of Old Testament and intertestamental Jewish symbols. So he's drawing stuff out of the Old Testament left and right. Ideas, concepts, stories, words, examples. But he's also drawing on a deep well of all those intertestamental writings that happened between Malachi and Matthew. And there's lots of those that actually bring a lot of color to Revelation also. But the third well that John is drawing on and that I've been arguing for that I think makes a lot of sense and brings a lot of interpretive wisdom to the book is he is drawing on Greco-Roman imagery. More specifically, the Roman imperial cult. And what I mean by the Roman imperial cult is this whole ethos that existed in the Roman Empire around the spirit of Rome and the emperor is the head of Rome and the religious cult, for lack of a better word, that developed around that. Now, you can jump into the Bible and see all kinds of parallels between the way that the temple and tabernacle was set up and how it corresponds or mirrors what John is picturing in heaven. And it's cool and it's amazing and there's deep roots there. The symbolic world that I want to take you into today is the Roman imperial cult. And I've wrestled with how to do this because there's a lot of data that I want to share and I think it's important to know, but if I just sit up here and yabber on about it, my fear is it's all going to kind of get lost. So what I'm going to do is something that I typically recommend someone never does in these kinds of situations and I am going to read to you. I am literally going to read to you an excerpt from a paper about this. And as I do, I'm gonna put some slides on the screen because I hope that by doing some of the heavy lifting with context now, 
it is going to allow us to more easily understand the, re- the rest of Revelation. Remember, this is Revelation in context. My goal with this is not necessarily to answer every question about every grammatical point and every symbol in the book. Instead, it's to help give you that worldview so that as you go to the book, you have a frame of reference by which to better access it. Does that make sense? So, with that being said, let's jump in. The Rise of a Mythic Empire. By the end of the 3rd century BC, Rome had subjugated the West and set its eyes on the East. From a Roman perspective, the East would be what we call Turkey or Asia Minor or where the seven churches of Revelation are located. Through a series of campaigns in Greece, Syria, Asia Minor, and Palestine, Rome eventually gained control of the entire Mediterranean region. Besides the glory of conquest and victory, unprecedented amounts of wealth and goods flowed into the empire. Plagued, however, by grain shortages, resistance from local kings, and pirates, yes, they had to fight pirates, that's amazing, isn't it? Rome found it necessary to take decisive military action in order to consolidate and secure its empire. In order to win public support for this military expansion, the Roman elite decided to appeal to the average Roman's economic self-interest, patriotic fervor, and Roman nationalism. Does that sound familiar? Cicero, for example, appealed to Romans on the grounds that they must protect their revenues, peace, and resources for war. Military and political domination would provide economic benefit and would in turn provide peace and prosperity to the far reaches of the empire. So after Pompey's victory, Cicero wrote that Roman people had finally become the masters of a universal dominion. This was a significant turning point and that the Romans came to understand themselves in a different way now as a world empire with a mythic status. From there, the seedbeds of emperor worship took root. Worshiping Rome. Shortly after Rome subjugated the Mediterranean world, the new and fragile empire was threatened with a civil war. Pompey and Julius Caesar, the two Roman generals most responsible for establishing uh, Rome's empire, turned on each other, vying for primacy and control. And after a decade-long conflict, Pompey and Alexandria, with Julius Caesar assuming control and leadership of the empire. Suetonius lists him as the first of the Caesars, which in and of itself shows that Romans viewed this as the beginning of a new age. Rome existed for about 600 years before this. But don't we all think of Julius Caesar as the first? Get into the worldview. This is a turning point when a new status in new way takes place. Now, I mentioned a guy named Suetonius. If you want to read one Very easy to read book, very engaging book, very interesting book, very sarcastic book about 
the first century Roman emperors, guys like Nero, guys like Claudius, guys like Caesar Augustus, the people Jesus was born under, the people Jesus died under, the people the church suffered under, and Domitian, who was the emperor in the time, it is called the 12 Caesars. You could probably pick it up for 50 cents at a used book sale because no one ever wants to read books like this, and I guarantee your library will give it to you and say, please don't bring it back. Not because it isn't interesting. And you can probably find public domain versions of this as well, but I highly caution you against it. Because the reason it's public domain is because nobody wants to read it in that translation. It'll be about 100 years old in translation, and it'll read like Charles Dickens. If you dig that, well, get it for free. If you have an extra $9 lying around, maybe get the Kindle version instead and save yourself a lot of pain. But it's a really great book if you ever want to get deep into it. And it's a very, it's like he's, he's writing later after the fact, not trying to glorify the emperors, but pointing out how did Rome get to the place that it's at? Good book. That's who I'm referring to. You're going to hear a lot of quotes by him. Let me keep going. So look, look, let me give you one excerpt of what Suetonius writes. About Julius Caesar... He says, not only did he accept excessive honors, but took other honors, which as a mere mortal, he certainly should have refused. No, no human being should have accepted the honors that were being thrust upon him. Do you see what he's saying there? He lists some. These included a golden throne in the Senate House and another on the tribunal, like the Supreme Court, right? a ceremonial chariot and litter for carrying his statue and the religious procession around the circus. And the circus isn't like going to Barnum and Bailey today. I mean, the circus is like, it's like the main spot. You get the idea it's the main public gathering place. Temples, altars, divine images, a priest of his own cult, a new college of lupercoles to celebrate his divinity, and the, remaining, and the renaming of the seventh month as July. You hear it in there? Julius, July. Um, July and August did not exist as months before Julius Caesar. That's why September is called September. Sept means seven, but it's the ninth month. That's why October is called October, because it means eight, but it's the 10th month. In November, Nov means nine. Dec, you know, you know, you've heard dec, that means 10. Like, why is it like this? Well, because Julius Caesar is gonna kinda go, well, I need a month. And then guess who's gonna need a month after him? His successor, Augustus, August. Lupercoles, let me talk about that really quick. Um, you, you might hear, like you Harry Potter fans, the word Lupin in here. And if you know Harry Potter, we know that Lupin turns into a wolf. If you don't know that by now, the book has been out 20 years. We're beyond spoiler alerts, okay? Um, the legend of Rome is that it was birthed by wolves. And we have the story of Remus and Romulus and, and how they kind of started it. And there was what was called like the Lupin cult or the Lupercoles, which were the priests or the brotherhood. And what they would do every February was kind of like their own day of atonement. And, and basically it was big religious stuff in the Roman Empire. Well, now he's got his own who are celebrating him. So what I find is helpful is to try to contextualize these things. Imagine it in today's world. 
is I use our national leaders. Understand I am non-sectarian in this. When I talk about Biden, he is our president. I am not kicking Biden in the teeth. And I would do the same thing with Trump. And I will do the same thing whoever gets elected in 2024. Now that the disclaimer is out there, go with the analogy. Imagine if Biden was to set up a golden throne in the legislative branch. Would you say that's an overstep of his ex executive power and rule it? And what if he did the same on the Supreme Court? Okay, go further. What if he had a ceremonial chariot and people who would carry him a litter on a throne, um, carrying a statue made of him in all religious processions? Like, so every church service would open and a statue of Joe Biden would be brought and carried by his loopercles and things. Are you understanding what's going on here? Are you following it? And what if he um, added a 13th month called um, Bidunary? Or, or something like that. Um, and, and celebrated his own divinity. Are you getting the sense of what Julius Caesar is doing? This overreach led to his assassination by those of a Republican frame of mind. Republican meaning the Roman Republic. All right? Don't understand that. But the result was not what one would have expected. Rome declared Julius Caesar a god. Notice that these honors were bestowed upon Julius Caesar by the Roman people. In the wake of the pride and arrogance that often accompanies earthly power and prosperity, Rome needed a figurehead to embody their newfound divine self-understanding. Note also that Caesar accepted these honors. Even if he was simply playing the role, his actions paved the way for Caesars to follow perhaps over fear of a renewed civil war. Or maybe because his mythic status began to take root, the populace turned on those responsible for his murder and proceeded to hail Caesar as a god en masse. A decree was read voting Caesar all divine and human honors. His body was cremated in the temple of Jupiter, that's Zeus in the Roman understanding associating him with the supreme god of the Roman pantheon. Miracle stories and myths associated with his divinity cropped up. According to Suetonius, the decision for his cremation in Jupiter's temple was spurred by the sudden appearance of two divine forms who lit the funeral pyre. So that's what he's saying what happened. These angels showed up and lit the flames, and that's how he was cremated. Suetonius goes on to write, and I think I gave this quote, his immediate deification, formally decreed, was more than a mere official decree since it reflected public conviction. If only because on the first day of the games given by his successor, Augustus, in honor of this, do you know what an apotheosis is? It, it, it's a God-making. An apotheosis is becoming divine. So upon him becoming divine and achieving divine status, Augustus, in honor of this, well notes that a comet appeared and shone for seven days running. This was held to be Caesar's soul, elevated to heaven, hence the star now placed above the forehead of his divine image. They went on um, and capitalized on this. The cult centers to the divine Julius were founded in colonies like Corinth, Octavian, that's Augustus, dedicated a temple to the divine Julius at, the capital, uh, at Jupiter's um, temple where he was cremated. 
Asia and Bithynia requested permission to worship Julius Caesar as, quote, savior and deliverer. Octavian even had coins minted to show the comet that signified the ascent of Julius to the throne of Jupiter in heaven, and imprinted on the coins were the words, Divine Julius. Let me show it to you. Here's the coin. On the front, you see Julius Caesar's depiction. And if you can squeeze it out, which you can, you can see here it kind of says, sorry, I, I said this the wrong way. It's actually Caesar or Octavian's. This is not Julius Caesar. This is Octavian, and here's what he's doing. Do you see it says kind of like C-A-E-S-A-R? Do you see it says A? U-G-U-S-T-U-S, Caesar Augustus. But do you, like, you know how we got, like, you know, face in the front of our quarters and you flip it over and you got tails? D-I-V-U-S, what's that sound like to you? Divus, what's divine, you see divine in it? Whose name is that? Can you make it out? Iulius, Julius, divine, Julius. So, you see the starburst, right? You see the comet kind of happening there. You see what he's doing? Coins were the ancient form of communication and often propaganda. As bills are today, we honor people on our money that we want to remember and keep before the public eye, but especially back then. So he has all these coins minted in honor of the comet. Now, astrology is huge in the Roman world and in the ancient world. You've got to take astrology for granted as just being a normal way of life and not so much like what you would think of as a, like, funny fad or weird thing on the side today or kind of laughable. It was very centered to how people thought back then, and it wasn't really what it was today. But a couple things noted on this, and if you ever want to get into this, I'd recommend a podcast called um, This Strange World by a, um, a Roman Catholic apologist called Jimmy Aiken, A-K-I-N. Spend about 45 minutes of your life listening to his podcast on astrology. It is, it'll, it'll blow things from the Christmas story open to you with the Magi to all things in between. Anyway, stars and omens often signified strange things in the stars were omens that signified important things happening on Earth. And normally, something new, like a comet or a shift in the planets or something, would be considered a bad omen. That's um, where the word disaster comes from. Dis is bad and astros means star. A disaster is a bad star. Ooh, something horrible is going to happen. Well, when Julius Caesar died, there's a comet that appears for seven days. The heavens are responding to his death. Did you see how I just spun that? It is horrible that one like Julius Caesar, the gift of the gods to us, would be assassinated. But we see by this comet that his soul is being brought up to the right hand of Jupiter in heaven. And do you see how Augustus can play this? Because if Julius Caesar is now a god, what does that make Augustus? 
the Son of God. You follow? By upholding his father, adopted father as God, Octavian tacitly affirmed he was a son of a god. This effectively catalyzed the divine emperor cult throughout the empire, while allowing Octavian to avoid any appearance of self-deification. I'm not a god. I'm not saying I'm a god, but we clearly see what happened to Julius Caesar. I'm just a poor man that has to follow, you know, in, in, in the train of what the gods have laid upon me and called me. See how I spun it? See how it works? See how it takes root? Thus, the mythic status of the Roman Empire advanced to new levels with an emperor cult as its embodiment in the reign of Augustus. So let's get into it. The divine myth of Caesar. With the reign of Octavian, philosophers and poets began to predict the dawn of a new golden age. Virgil writes, quote, this, this is he whom so often you hear promised to you, Augustus, Caesar, son of a god, who shall reign again and set up the golden age. In this new age, the kingdom of Rome would reign with the emperor positioned as savior of the world. Like Julius Caesar, miraculous myths grew up around Octavian. Suetonius lists paragraph after paragraph of omens and signs concerning him. A famous astrologer on hearing what hour Augustus was born cried out, the ruler of the world is now born. More significantly, Suetonius writes, everyone believes this story. When Octavian's father consulted pagan priests, because Octavian was adopted, when Octavian's father consulted pagan priests about his son's destiny, a pillar of fire shot in the sky, a sign, Suetonius writes, never before granted except to Alexander the Great when he sacrificed at this very altar. The implications of correspondence is clear. Lightning was said to have struck the very spot Octavian would be born. His mother was said to be impregnated at the temple of Apollo by the god in serpent form, resulting in Octavian's divine conception. In his childhood, it was said that the animal world would obey him, including an eagle, which was Roman symbols. Gods were said to have anointed him in dreams. The story of one dream and its fulfillment is worth repeating in full. Did I give you this one? Nope. I'll skip it. It's not worth repeating here. Miraculous signs also indicated to Julius Caesar that his grandnephew nephew should succeed him. Titles, descriptions, honors, superlative words were given to him. Descriptions today we would only ascribe to Christ. Octavian would take the name Augustus, which means revered one or one with divine favor. Temples were built to Augustus, including one in Ephesus, the key of the seven churches, right? dedicated to him as the revered one. Monuments were erected, proclaiming a universal reign with public displays listing the accomplishments of the divine Augustus. This was symbolized at home with the image of a globe stamped on coins, leading one poet to write that Augustus made the boundaries of the empire equal to the boundaries of the earth. Here's an inscription from the area in Asia Minor around the seven churches in 9 BC, about 100 years before the Caesar cult was an issue for people that John is writing to. Check this out. The most divine Caesar, 
we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward disillusion, he saved us. He restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good and fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the beginning of the new year. Whereas providence, think of providence as a God, capital P, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us Augustus, whom providence filled with strength for the welfare of men, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times in surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas finally the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. It is a Roman word. It is not a Christian word. Therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. Are you not seeing the parallels here with Jesus? I mean, isn't it uncanny? The language used about Jesus literally in the time of Augustus. There is so much more going on in the biblical story and not just revelation than the words at their face value. Because every time you say Jesus is Lord, you are saying Caesar is not. Who is the gospel about? When did we start dating a new era? When does A.D. begin? From Caesar Augustus, is that the year of the Lord? Or from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all these other things? It's crazy, isn't it? And this was in 9 B.C., Note that in his lifetime, Augustus is given the label divine. He is called the beginning of all things, equated with providence as the sustainer of the world, called God manifest and savior. With his birth begins a new age that is heralded as the gospel or good news. Given that John writes revelation to the seven churches in the province of Asia, the location of this inscription is significant. when emperors believe they are gods. The emperors in the first century AD considered to be stable leaders, people like Tiberius, Claudius, Vespasian, and Titus, four of his 12. They tended to personally distance themselves from divine worship and accolades. Though it should be noted that all of them, including Augustus, were more than willing to uphold the myth and allow it to propagate for their own political purposes. Despite reticence for self-deified emperors in the city of Rome, because, you know, people know you where you live. They kind of laugh at that kind of stuff, right? The imperial cult nonetheless flourished beyond Augustus, particularly in Asia Minor, Turkey, the East. A new class of religious officials called the Augustali emerged under Tiberius, serving as priest and temple wardens who officiated ceremonies of emperor worship throughout the year. Male choirs known as hymnodies, who had previously venerated Zeus and Apollos, now sang praises of the emperor and held banquets in his honor. One altar in Pergamum, that's one of our churches, 
showed the development of the cult, and it read, with good fortune, to Emperor Caesar, Trajan, Hadrian, Olympias, savior and founder. The male choirs of God Augustus and goddesses Rome dedicate this. The inscription provides further details for ceremonies, including crowns, incense, lamps, and hymns of praise. Later emperors became more brazen in their self-deification, with three in particular bringing the emperor cult to new extremes. Caligula came to believe in his own divinity and eagerly portrayed himself as a god. Philo, who's a dude that you should read, should I give you the quote? Says this. He metamorphed and transformed himself into Apollos. So like the guy's alive and he does this. He just starts like dressing like the guy and acting like the guy. I mean, right? Crowning his head with garlands in the form of rays. Like, can you imagine some dude like walking around with the Statue of Liberty thing on his head? But but like believing it? And holding a bow and arrows in his left hand and holding forth graces in his right as if it became him to pro-offer blessings to all people from his ready store. And immediately there were established choruses who had been carefully trained singing uh, basically just like brown-nosing him. That's what a paean is. The same who sang Bacchus hymns in his honor when he assumed the disguise of Bacchus. So he dressed up like the god Bacchus too and like roll that way, I guess. Next, Gaius extended the palace as far as the forum. He converted shrines to other gods like Castor and Pollux into like his own waiting chambers, vestibule to his area. And would often stand behind these like statues and idols of these divine brethren to be worshipped by all visitants. So like you're going through and you want to see like the Castor and Pollux like, like statues and maybe leave your offering there. Well, he would make sure to hang there so that you could worship him too. You following? what he's doing here? Some of whom addressed him as Jupiter. He established a shrine to himself as God with priests, the costliest possible victims, and a life-sized golden image. Flamingos, peacocks, grouse, guinea hens, and pheasants were offered as sacrifices, each on a particular day of the month. When the moon god shone full and bright, he always invited the moon goddess to sexual intercourse in his bed. I don't even know what that means. And during the day would indulge in worshiped and whispered conversations with with Jupiter, pressing his ear to the god's mouth and sometimes raising his voice in anger. So understand he's doing this to a statue, an idol. Here's an idol to Jupiter, and he would spend his day pushing his ear up to the lips of Jupiter and then claiming to speak on Jupiter's behalf. Following? Once he was overheard threatening the god, Jupiter, if you do not raise me up to heaven, I will cast you down to hell. Finally, he announced that Jupiter had persuaded him to share his home. Right? So we see a picture in Revelation chapter 4. And who is on the throne? There is one seated. And yet there is one standing there on the throne. What is Caligula doing here? You you, you see the parallels to the two sharing a throne? Just some things to think about. Let's keep going. Suetonius describes him with utter contempt, saying he insisted on being treated as a god, sending the most revered of artistically famous statues of the god deities. He writes, and I'm going to skip stuff for time. Shortly before his death, Caligula ordered that a statue of himself be played in Jerusalem temple. I bet that went over well. 
Philo recounts the laments of the Jews. Our temple is destroyed. Gaius has ordered a colossal statue of himself to be erected in the Holy of Holies, having his own name inscribed upon it with the title of Jupiter. So his face, Caligula's face, but it says Jupiter on it. Fortunately, a wise governor delayed and Caligula died before the order was enforced. Nero, likewise, came to embrace the Roman myth. He erected a statue of himself at Rome as Apollo. Cassius Dio records that at his reception, Rome was decked with garlands, ablaze with lights, and reeking with incense. The whole populations, the senators themselves, all kept shouting, Hail Olympian victor, Augustus, Augustus, hail to Nero or Hercules, hail to Nero or Apollo, the only victor, the one from whom the beginning of time has come. Augustus, Augustus, O divine voice, blessed are they that hear thee. Dio reports that the senators, the Roman elite, were equally involved. Whatever disdain they held for emperors quick to affirm their own deity, they had no problem ascribing them divine titles. You heard some of them. No first century embraced the emperor myth more than Domitian. And Domitian is the emperor in the time of Revelation. Cassius Dio writes about him in his Roman history. He even insisted upon being regarded as a god and took vast pride in being called master and god. I shared this with you before, but he actually demanded that his family and his wife address him as my lord and my god, which is really kind of cool, I got to say. I I like that about him. But uh, these titles were used not merely, Cassius Dio says, in speech, but he also wrote them down. And we all know the difference in that, don't we? He further writes, so many honors were voted to him that almost the whole world, so far as it was under his dominion, was filled with his images and statues constructed of both silver and gold. Coins were minted declaring Domitian is the father of the gods and portrayed him with spiked crowns associated with divinity. One famous statue he had commissioned features him holding a scroll in his hand, symbolizing his divine right to rule over all of history. And Revelation 5 says, I looked And in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw an angel proclaim, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and I wept because no one could open the scroll, which symbolized his divine right to rule over history. Do you see what Revelation is doing? Caligula, Nero, and Domitian were embarrassment to Romans, and yet their actions are a natural result of the myth propagated around the empire. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. Now, I thank you for your patience as I read to you today. I didn't know a more expedited way I could do this because I believe it is absolutely essential for you to immerse yourself in the Roman imperial world view to understand what John is going to do. And not just in Romans 4 and 5, 
but in the rest of the letter. What I am going to do next week is pick up and go through all of the symbols that we see in Roman 4 and 5. Throne, theophanies, torches, 24 elders, the nature of the worship in hymns, the lion of the tribe of Judah and why it's the only place in the Bible he is called a lion, by the way, and the scroll, the word faith, something called the Pax Romana. You ever hear that? Versus the Pax Christi. It should say Pax, not Pas, stupid spell check. And what I'm going to do next week is show you the Roman counterpoint to all of those symbols to show you exactly what I think John is writing in this letter. So that's where we'll pick it up. Thank you for coming. If you want the notes on this because you find it interesting, ask me. Happy to share them with you. God bless.